From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Australia's higher education sector is under scrutiny and, some would say, in disarray. It's still recovering from the impact of COVID and criticised for its treatment of staff. It faces strong pressures to step up its performance in coming years, including preparing for a big expansion in its output of graduates, especially those from disadvantaged backgrounds. Education Minister Jason Clare launched a review of the sector and we already have its interim report. Brian Schmidt is one of Australia's most eminent academics, an astrophysicist who shared a Nobel Prize in 2011. Since 2016, he's been Vice-Chancellor of the Australian National University, a position he leaves at the end of this year. He joins us today to talk about the challenges facing universities. Brian Schmidt, in a recent address, you spoke of how private education providers have the potential to decimate the business model of universities, something along the lines of what Uber did to the taxi industry. I wonder if you could just elaborate on this. Yeah, I think that universities' business models these days uh, require us to teach a large number of students, but also require us to use teaching income to uh, undertake research and other activities. So companies, when they disintermediate existing industries like Uber and taxis, they're always looking for a weak spot. And in our case, the weak spot is that students are paying for research, but the way we're teaching students is increasingly divorced from that research. That is, they're not really getting any benefit from the research that their tuition fees are supporting. And this is true a bit in Australia. It's true around the world, except for some of the most elite institutions in the world. And I count ANU as one of those. And so I'm really concerned about the future viability of the whole university sector where teaching and research go hand in hand, because I see the research, which is increasingly not being funded by government, suddenly losing its life lifeblood through student income. Now, the government's review in its interim report suggests having a wider range of complementary institutions in the sector. What would be the advantages of that? And what would the shape of the system look like then? So I think we need to see what emerges. Uh, I like to see these different types of institutions sort of emerge out of a you know, kind of a continuum of offerings they do. So if you look at what uh, students are going to need in the future, they need education and people keep on talking about skills. But in order to take up skills, you need to be educated in things in a kind of a foundational way. And I do worry that sometimes we look at focusing so much at skills that we forget the education such that people will find themselves unable to take up the skills they need sometime in the future. But imagine a set of uh, offerings that is a much broader set than we have now. Imagine one-year degrees. Imagine 
uh, three years degrees that have two years of skills and only one year of education. But also imagine having a bachelor's degree, three years education with added skills on that more or less reflects the expectations of the world rather than trying to undermine the bachelor's degree to get a one size fits all thing. So if you've got a bunch of different types of offerings, including very vocational education that is interlinked with, uh, I would say, traditional knowledge-based education, you can imagine university or university-like institutions competing for what they offer relative to the market and what the market wants. And I think you'd have to have some price differentiation between those. Uh, but I think that is the way to kind of give Australians what they need in the future. Uh, and from that, naturally, some more specialism, uh, specialization within the institutions will emerge. So I'd like to see it emerge rather than be saying, you'll be this type of institution, you'll be this type of institution, which I think governments get wrong when they do that. So are we talking here about universities that just teach, don't try and compete on the research front, and others that are basically dedicated to research with uh, not teaching responsibilities or very few teaching responsibilities? I think uh, you kind of want those things to emerge, but I could imagine that a research-led teaching like ANU does is a very important thing, for example, train the future researchers who are you know, going to work in the synchrotron and work on telescopes and work in you know, our uh, heavy ion accelerator and things like that. But the fraction of students who need to do that type of education is probably not everyone. And my guess is it's a number around 10 to 20 percent of students need something like that. Uh, you can imagine a lot of students need a little bit of research-led education and a small part of what they study, but would like then more generic offerings, which are cheaper to provide. And then you can imagine a lot of people need to have really skills-based, but maybe a little more sophisticated than what vocational education right now provides, but skills-based education that can be done by practitioners rather than professors uh, and I guess what I'd like to see is those things kind of emerge from a, uh, a set of offerings that we all offer. And, and I just think that uh, students will end up choosing what they think's best. And my guess is that's probably what's going to be best for them overall um, in the end. Does this take us back to something like the old colleges of advanced education? It might, but the difference would be is the colleges of advanced education were, you know, pigeonholed. You are a college of advanced education. And there was a certain set of things they could do, small set of offerings they could do. I guess what I'm thinking about would allow, um, you know, University of Canberra, where you're at here, to decide which, which offerings it's going to do. And you could imagine you see offering some very sophisticated um, things in journalism, in nursing, which, uh, you know, are kind of best in class in Australia. Uh, and then on some things saying, well, we're going to be more skills based on um, IT or something. So rather than pigeonhole, uh, you know, universities like our own, uh, we kind of let them select 
what they're going to teach. And the key then is to say, with the income contingent loan system, which is a really powerful part of the Australian system, is you're going to have to have a differentiation of price on those based relatively close to uh, how much it costs, uh, and then let the students then make that choice between cost and the things they get. And what about the role of other sorts of providers, uh, mega companies, for example, getting into the uh, education system? Well, they're going to get there whether or not we want them to or not. And imagine we're talking about computer programming. A massified offering from Google or Microsoft or AWS is going to be done really well because they have billions of dollars to put into it. Uh, It's a brand that people know, so we don't really compete on that. Now it'll be digital. There'll be no classroom experience. There's not going to be all these other things that we provide. They're going to get in there and they're going to sell that for whatever the market will bear. So I guess the question is, do I want to be at the ANU competing with that? The answer is no, because I'm going to lose. Their, their, their cost structures are cheaper than mine. But what they're offering is not what I'm trying to offer. I'm trying to provide people the ability to do more than just a homogenized offering. We get to talk to the people who write the, check, uh, the, the textbooks, get to live on campus with a bunch of people not just doing the IT degree you're doing. So I really want to provide something different. But a lot of universities, like it or not, are providing mass offerings that can be completely replicated by a company cheaper and better. And those are the parts of the ecosystem I'm very worried about. Now, Jason Clare argues that we'll need a doubling of the number of people going to university by 2050 to meet the requirements of the labour market. But one of your own experts, the ANU's Andrew Norton, doubts this is feasible. What's your view? Well, I think it's not feasible if we think everyone's going to go in and do three-year bachelor's degrees taught by research active faculty. And the reason is, is that the the country's appetite to fund the research of professors who normally spend half their time doing research, half their time teaching, is just not there. We can't even get to pay for the current set of professors uh, that are doing things. So that's one problem. The other problem is, as indicated earlier, most students, the median student of Australia, so let's say the 50th percentile of all students graduating just doesn't really, they're not going to have the interest or aptitude or all sorts of things about those types of research-led bachelor's degrees. So I think the model I'm talking about, where you offer a whole range of things on a continuum from what is effectively a CERT two in vocational education up to a PhD and not create this uh, false hierarchy where knowledge always trumps skills, but rather they sit side by side, I think you could get a very rich ecosystem that could, probably cheaper than what we do now, but certainly better than what we do now, cater to a large fraction of people getting higher education. It's just not going to look like the same set of offerings that 40% of the students go off and start at universities today. 
Some figures which have just been released indicate there are, in fact, going to be declining university enrolments for next year. Do you think this is mainly a consequence of a, a strong labour market where young people can earn quite a lot of money getting jobs immediately rather than going to university? Or do you think there are other uh, more fundamental reasons? So this year's decline, I actually think is probably more of a labor market thing. Uh, But the long-term decline where people start seeing the graduate premium not being as attractive as what it used to be, noting that the current graduate premium is a roughly a half a million dollars for someone who goes to uh, and does a bachelor's degree. That is, you make a half a million dollars more in your lifetime uh, than those who don't. Um, but we've seen that graduate premium shrinking as more and more people go to university. And so one could imagine that uh, as these other providers come in, people are able to do online non-university training that it will become less attractive to go to universities in the future. I think that will become um, a real thing over the next 10, 15, 20 years. I just don't think it's what we're seeing right now. I think it is the market right now. It's a bit of a paradox, though, isn't it, given uh, what Jason Clare is saying about needing so many more graduates? Well, I think we need to, you know, one of the interesting things is that people always think that the future is going to be like the past. And this comes from both uh, students and uh, policymakers. So I think Jason's saying we're going to need more skilled, more educated people in the future. So we need more people going in. And I think he's right. But I do think that the um, students of today say, hey, I can go out and get a job and this isn't going to cost me anything. And yet it costs them probably uh, for those who are qualified to go to university, probably cost them about a half a million dollars a year, or not a year, half a million dollars in their lifetime. So, you know, people, uh, that the future is very hard to gauge, uh, as we all know. And uh, I think it's, it's hard to make good long-term decisions when you have the eye of the short-term issues at, uh, to mind. Australia is producing a large number of PhD graduates, and yet there are not enough academic jobs for many of them, and they want those sorts of jobs. Do we have too many PhD students going through, do you think? So this will be controversial, but the answer, I think, right now, given the state of the Australian economy, probably yes. Uh, And the reason I say that, it's not just academic jobs. Uh, We don't expect... Um, we don't expect our, all of our uh, PhDs to go get um, academic jobs. It's never been that way, and it's, it shouldn't be that way. What we do expect is those PhD students to go get jobs where their skills of research um, and knowledge uh, add a lot of value to their job. And that's the part where the Australian economy isn't very uh, developed. You know, we always see that the complexity of our economy, our economy is very non-complex and there's just not a lot of absorptive capacity right now for PhDs. So PhDs relative to, for example, Germany or the United States 
actually have the opposite of a graduate premium. It goes, their, their income goes backwards right now. And a little, even if it stays steady, fine. But actually losing approximately half your graduate premium, which is what it appears right now, for doing a PhD, that's a bad sign, in my opinion. So I actually think we don't need to slash the number of PhDs, but we might want to turn it down a little bit until we get Australian industry and government to be able to absorb those PhDs effectively. Minister Clare is very concerned with getting more equity into the sector. How do you think this is best achieved? So the first thing that is not said in the Accord Interim Report, and this is the single most important thing, is our students, when they finish high school, have to be university ready. Universities trying to fix the problems and shortcomings of our K through 12 system, or even pre-K through 12 system, that is, we're the last line of defense. So we absolutely must get uh, our PISA scores rising across the board. And PISA, much better than NAPLAN, of benchmarking us against the world because those tests are not taught against um, by various schools. So it's a pretty effective measure, in my opinion, that OECD measure. Once students, though, have graduated and they are university ready, then the certainly here at ANU, we find that the access to university is not level. Why? Because studying full-time at university is full-time. And the notion that they're going to go work a full-time job and study full-time seems possible and is done by many of students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, but it puts them at a huge disadvantage. It's just really difficult to do that. And so we really need to focus on adequate support for students, especially in that first year or two when they come to university, so that they can study alongside everyone else on equal basis. And yes, we should encourage students to get jobs as they study, especially a little bit later on. But this is a place where I think um, the way Australia did things in the past is uh, holding us back, where parents say, well, this is what I did. Well, they shouldn't have had to do that either. I can just tell you, it is really hard to um, you know, work full-time and study full-time and expect to get anything close to good marks at a university these days. Just going back to your point about schooling, you've um, talked uh, about a lack of basic skills in literacy and numeracy and uh, said in one speech that schools are teaching, and I quote, a whole bunch of other stuff. Can you just explain what you think needs to be done and what needs to be cut out of these school curriculums? So that was a partial quote of what I said. The first thing I want to make clear is I am not a pedagogy expert, uh, especially through K through 12. But what I see provides success at universities are people who are literate and numerate. And the PISA tests show literacy and numeracy declining monotonically since 2000, since the first time that um, uh, test was done in every jurisdiction, bar the ACT, which in the last testing round actually bounced up a little bit. And we know the ACT spends more money on public education than any other jurisdiction. So we need to focus 
on getting people numerate and uh, literate above all things else. And it is okay to teach other things, but we need to focus and say, when we're teaching those other things, can we keep on reinforcing the numeracy and literacy? Are those other things at the expense of the necessary uh, literacy and numeracy? And I would say by looking at the results of our students coming out on PISA, clearly what we're doing does not have enough focus on the literacy and numeracy results. And I would like to see that focus put on. I don't have a prescription of how to do it, but what I, I wanna see is an absolute focus. And I encourage people to look at the ACT and figure out what they did to raise their numeracy and literacy between 2015 and 2018, because they're the only ones who's managed to do it. And I think it's by spending quite a bit of money in the public system. So when we look at why this has happened in those years you've mentioned, do you think it's a lack of resources or do you think it's a, a question of teacher training or is it fashion in the way things are taught? I, I honestly uh, don't know. I, I don't have evidence at hand that tells me what's going on. I can only see the outcome. So what I would encourage us is to try to diagnose and spend, if I can be honest, a lot of research money, millions of dollars trying to diagnose what is causing the slide in these scores and then try to specifically fix this. I mean, we spend, I don't know, tens of billions of dollars on this, uh, but I haven't seen the $10 million research program to go and get the evidence to figure out uh, what the slide is caused by. I'm guessing it's complicated uh, and it's not a single thing, but there will be some factors if they do that evidence base right that will help us, I think, reverse the trend. And that's what I would advocate we need to do. You've been very critical of the reliance on the revenue from overseas students to prop up a lot of the research that's being done. How should research financing be rearranged? Uh, pretty simply, I've provided a bit of a um, prescription and the uh, you know response to the accord. Uh, so sovereign research, and that's things supported by the Commonwealth. These are things the Commonwealth directs. That needs to have the overhead uh, paid and not require cross subsidy from international sources. So for example, when I have a physics program at ANU and one of my physicists gets an Australian Research Council grant, uh, I have roughly for every dollar of Research Council grant that that person earns, I have to find nearly a dollar in everything from the person's time to the building to the electricity to the equipment, et cetera, et cetera. And this is something that literally no other country is crazy enough to do, which is to rely on international income to support sovereign research capability. So rather than right now have a research block grant that sprays across all sorts of things that are not Commonwealth um, responsibility. They need to focus that research on the Commonwealth grants. And there has to be an agreement 
by the Commonwealth that when they ask universities and other research agencies uh, and institutes to do research, they have to pay a reasonable overhead to do the work and not bid us down because it's bankrupting us. So defense, you know, is going to be asking the sector to do a huge amount of work. And we need to have an agreement that that work is going to come with the necessary overheads uh, that allow us to do it, rather than expecting us to charge students, uh, either domestic or abroad, um, a an extra fee uh, to make that work happen. It just doesn't make sense as it's clearly done now. And if we do that, it's not that much extra money. So we as a nation and we as taxpayers, of course, ought to be willing to put more funds into research. That's what you're saying. I would say it's a little bit more, but it is focusing the resources on the must-haves. Right now, the way this, the policy is written is the, res- the, the basic research grant overhead is sprayed across everything. And things the Commonwealth wants and things the Commonwealth doesn't care about. So I think they need to focus and take complete uh, responsibility on their share. And then everyone else then has the bar of what's fair and reasonable for that bit. And if we want research and the things the Commonwealth doesn't care about, well, they're going to have to find their own way to do it. And that might be, you know, finding international sources of income to do that. But at least it's not the sovereign research capability that's being cross-subsidized. International students have brought in a a lot of money. They've been a a major export industry. But do you think that universities, including your university, became too dependent on overseas students? And has the ANU rethought this in light of the COVID experience? So universities reflect the policy environment that we live in. And the Commonwealth has consistently withdrawn funding for research. So we necessarily have gone and pulled the levers to replace that funding. And now that that lever is international student income almost entirely. And so I think we're getting to a point um, where we're becoming too reliant on international students. And it's beginning to, I would say, break, at least in some institutions, the the healthy academic environment that we would expect for an Australian institution. Uh, and so I think where we've gotten to, we can be immensely proud of, but at some point it it starts not working um, for the nation. So I, I think we're we're at that point and probably beyond. So when I look at ANU, the ANU, um, it turns out quite foolishly in 2018, under my leadership, announced we were going to cap the total number of students because we wanted to continue to provide our students with what I described at the time and I described today as a experience second to none. I want people to be able to have a place in Australia to go as an alternative to Harvard or Cambridge or Oxford. And I continue to provide that. But to make that possible, I need funds that go beyond what the federal government provides me. And I say that as the Commonwealth University. Uh, And those funds are only available by international students. 
And so we try to find a balance. I chose to um, restrict the number of students entirely, both domestic and international. And then COVID came. And that has uh, created a huge issue for me that some of my competitors don't have because during that period, they doubled down and brought in a whole bunch of extra students. So, you know, ANU has done its best to limit its exposure, but that has uh, created a, a huge issue for us financially over the last couple of years because we just haven't had the income to balance our books. So our, our plan is to have the number of international students we need to achieve our mission. Uh, we don't want to be any bigger than we need to be, uh, but uh, we're not going to just go for growth for growth's sake and bigger is better. We want to be um, the university we are, roughly 20,000 students. And so we need a certain number of international students to make that happen. Uh, in the end, it is the people of Australia who are taking on the risk because I could you know, back away from that. But that literally means right now uh, getting rid of all my high cost areas and think science, health and Asian studies, probably not the things that people want us to get rid of as the national university. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, unless there is literally no choice, that will be sort of over my dead body. Uh, but that requires uh, a policy environment that allows us to uh, continue to do expensive things on behalf of the Australian people. The Morrison government's Job Ready Graduates Program, which recalibrated fees to try to attract students into certain courses that match the uh, labour market needs, hasn't been successful. What changes do you think are required in that program? And how can university education be made more affordable in general for students? So the Jobs Ready Graduate program, uh, you know, we advised Bruce Chapman, the creator of Hex, advised that this was not going to work as they expected, that um, making it unaffordable for universities to take science students and affordable to take students in the humanities, social sciences, and the arts was just going to actually lead to more um, students uh from the Haas side than the STEM side. And, and that's more or less beginning to bear out. It'll take a little bit longer. But, you know, I find myself in the predicament that I've taken on extra science students um, as, as a matter of policy, but uh, we're not being paid for them right now, right? 17% of my domestic uh, students are now being um, uh, supported by the ANU without Commonwealth support because of the Jobs Ready Graduate Program. And that's, that's terrible. So uh, the HEX, I, I contend, despite some uh, stories in the media, that the income contingent loan system makes higher education affordable uh, for students in Australia. And there's some small little tweaks that can be done to improve it, but it genuinely makes it affordable. The thing that makes education unaffordable, as talked about earlier, is the lack of support for when they are studying, especially that first year or two, that allow them to get on their feet and not have to work full time while they study. That is, uh, students really need support, scholarships, cash in hand to pay the basics of life when they're studying in that first year or two. So that's the thing that I think 
is the game changer and what I strongly advocate for. It's not cheap. I understand it. It should be means tested by all means. But until we deal with that issue, we will not have an equitable system. The government's critical of the universities for not being active enough in combating sexual harassment, sexual assault on their campuses. Why do you think this is so rife on campuses? Do you think it's just being reported more or has there been an increase? And do you agree with the recent recommendation from a parliamentary committee for the government to set up an independent task force with strong powers to oversee university policies and practices to address the problem? So sexual violence is, I am sad to say, rife across Australia. And universities are, of course, a place which concentrate uh, people in the age group um, that this occurs, sort of, you know, 18 to 24. And in 2016, I made a point saying, we need to go out, take a survey, and take this head on. So I truly believe that universities have stood up in a way that no other part of society ever has. We have not ducked. We have actually stood up. But of course, when you stand up and take ownership, the ugly state of reality comes um, to, to, to light. And, you know, whether you're at ANU or any other university, uh, our students and way too many of our students are affected by sexual violence during their time here. And so I do believe it is a matter of shining a light on it. And a good case in point is ANU has by far and away the largest fraction of our students on campus. Therefore, it is not surprising if you ask, have you been assaulted on campus? We have the highest fraction of students um, being assaulted on our campus. Now, we have special responsibility to make ANU the safest environment that students are going to encounter uh, in society. And that is something that we have um, committed to try to achieve. But this is a wicked problem. And it is a wicked problem that is not easily solved. So in our own case, we have set up a council committee dedicated to student safety and well-being, which is expert-led. Uh, and that committee, uh, I am hoping, uh, both provides guidance and accountability uh, of me, the council, and to my students, and students are represented on that committee. I think we're one of the first places in the world to do that. I think that will emerge as best practice. The proposed committee to oversight, at some level, I think is not a bad idea. I want to have an expert committee to uh, respond to and to demonstrate the work I am doing. I want to be held accountable, but I want to be held accountable by people who understand the area and can make sensible uh, judgments of what I am doing being adequate, outstanding, or inadequate. Right now, that doesn't exist. I kind of have to go broadcast into the ether and watch what happens. So yes, I want to be held accountable by a body, 
but I do not want that body disembodied from my own governance to command me what to do because I am confident I am going to do a better job than it can. Uh, and so that is an important bit. I want to demonstrate to it that I will. I am doing an outstanding job. I do not want to be dictated what to do because that will be a lowest common denominator. And as indicated, we have a uh, campus environment here that is completely different than any other university in the sector. Now, just before we finish, I must ask you, what does life hold after being Vice Chancellor of ANU? Well, I'm hoping peace and tranquility and a little bit more time to make my Pinot Noir. But I will be returning to uh, Mount Stromlo Observatory, where, of course, I have been since 1995. I will continue to be a professor of astronomy, looking at neutron star, neutron star mergers. Uh, and so I'm excited about that. I am looking to teach a new uh, class on campus that I want to be huge where we look at um, transdisciplinarity, critical thinking, indigenous issues around the issues that every graduate should know when they finish university about modern Australia. And so I'm going to be trying to be very innovative and make that sort of a defining time for students and staff at ANU to be part of that. So I'm really looking forward to that. And of course, I will continue to uh, be my effervescent self, I'm sure, in the public stage, uh, both domestically and internationally, trying to make sure I don't cause my successor any problems. I'm sure we'll hear a lot of your views in the future. Brian Schmidt, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and uh, your opinions today. That's all for our podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.